Hi, this is Tamsin Granger. And this is this is Dan Abuhoff. Why is that so funny? I, it was delivery. It was a new delivery. I, I like it. Super. Okay. Well, Tamsin and Dan read the paper on Sunday, November 3rd. No, exactly. 2019. Right. Uh, so here we are. It's a chilly fall day. I think fall is definitely here. Oh, there's no question. There's no question that we are in the fall. And we had big storms on Halloween night. Uh, which blew down all the leaves. Mm. We went uh, from just before peak foliage to completely after. Well, the, the leaves There's were no gone. No peak, I the don't le- think. Leaves were gone. What are you going to do? Yeah. But uh, so. most of the trees remained, which is what matters. But here we are in the fall. This is the way it's supposed to be. It's 40, 50 degrees. It's November. It's all good. Got the fireplace rolling. The fireplace is rolling. Right. And... Uh, all right, so several interesting things happened this week. Um, and one thing that got an enormous amount of attention was this review of uh, Peter Luger that uh, Pete Wells wrote for the New York Times. Yes, Mr. Wells, Mr. food critic for the New York Times, wrote a scathing review of Peter Luger. Really scathing. Scathing is the really right word. Scathing. Took them down from two stars to zero stars. Yes, Zero okay. Stars, we should say, first of all, everyone knows Peter Luger, the iconic Brooklyn Steakhouse, number one. And number two, nobody gets Zero Stars. Right. Zero Stars is an unbelievable disaster. Yeah. Yeah. And so, uh, I mean, it really is, and it's fun to read. Oh, yes. And I know when I read comments online about the review, some people were just galvanized by that. They said, it's been a while since he wrote one of his really, you know, tough reviews and you read an article about what he's thinking when he writes reviews and he does not go out of his way to write negative reviews no 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 he makes the point you know the the times sometimes does a follow-up on uh reporter's work and he the next day wrote a column about what he his approach to writing criticism particularly in light of this peter luger review which got a lot of backlash and uh he, he, you know, it is. You, you could read a couple of things from it. It's really neat I will, stuff. I yeah. will, but, but anyway. But he says, look, uh, uh, I will, I take the job very seriously, but and I will write a negative review, but only in certain circumstances. Here's what he says. I tend to write negative reviews. Uh, well, he won't write negative reviews, which can hurt the bottom line of relatively small businesses. Uh, only when readers are at risk of wasting their money on the basis of an established reputation. In other words, you know, a, a struggling restaurant really trying working hard to get going, he's not going to write this kind of review. Right. But he looks at the reputation of Peter Luger. It's iconic. It can take it. And he sees people wandering in, into Peter Luger and paying $200 for dinner, and he's going to do something about it. So that's what you've got. Yeah, I don't think it's uh, the idea that Peter Luger can take it. Well, it's part uh, of it. I think it is like, part of it. Yeah, it's more like um, you know, people are getting ripped off, yeah, and they deserve some advance warning, right? Okay, now this is an iconic, you know, storied place, right? All right, uh, our our steak loving friends have dreamed of going there, right. have gone there. We've never been there. Okay, it's in Brooklyn. I've, I've been there. You've been there. You, you've never been there? I've never been there. Oh, really? Okay. No. Um, and when you went, what did you think? I, I don't like their kind of steak. I, it, it's porterhouse. And okay. I, I don't be, I, I don't love that. But, and I thought it was, yeah, I, I thought it was overrated, honestly. But, so anyway, I mean, it's loaded with tourists. People, you right. know, dream of going there. And uh, 
he wants you to know. Yeah. It can be a huge right, well, disappointment. Uh, Here's some of the things yeah. uh, that uh, he's said. <laughs> For instance, the Department of Motor Vehicles is a block party compared with the line at Peter Luger. And he makes the point that even if you have a reservation, You're standing and many online. people say this, you end up waiting. Right. Okay. And it's awful. And it's not like anybody's trying to make it more comfortable for you. Uh, another great line is some things are the same as ever. The shrimp cocktail has always tasted like cold latex dipped in ketchup and horseradish. The steak sauce has always tasted like the same ketchup and horseradish fortified with a little bit of corn syrup. Okay. Uh, so, and, uh, he goes on describing, was the Caesar salad always so drippy? The croutons always straight out of a bag? The grated cheese always so white and rubbery? I know there was a time the German fried potatoes were brown and crunchy because I eagerly ate them every time I went. Now they are mushy, dingy, gray, and sometimes cold. I look forward to them the way I look forward to finding a new irregularly shaped mole. <laughs> oh God! So I mean, this I mean, is kind of a fabulous. Well, and review. frankly, he even says he didn't like the steaks, which is uh, you know we had. Well, to he get says to... the steaks are tender, but uh, they really lack the flavor. That uh, yeah, I liked his his last line. Did you? Uh, well, you, you read have, it. You know, you know where it is. Right. Well, here's what he says. He says. The restaurant will always have its loyalists. Uh, they will say that nobody goes there for the fish, which he ordered at one point. Nobody goes there for the wine. Nobody goes for the salad. Nobody goes for the service. The list goes on. It gets harder to swallow until you start to wonder, who really needs to go to Peter Luger? And start to think the answer is nobody. Wow. <laughs> it's, uh... So anyway, so it's been great fun to read comments. Uh, he says in his article about writing the yeah. review that uh, he lays low after a review like this right. because there are these huge storms of commentary. And he says basically people supporting his view are 10 to 1 right. against uh, the defense. Well, listen, I mean, there's an argument. Uh, certainly there are loyalists and there are, uh, there are people going to criticize uh, such a negative review. But you know something? There are a lot of people take the opposite view. There was an, there is a piece about um, John Simon, the famous critic, and for years, John Simon's 94 years old. To give you an idea of John Simon's resume, uh, he's he's been a critic in New York for a long time. A critic of what? Uh, he's been a critic of everything, but just to highlight two things, for 36 years, from 69 to 2005, he was the theater critic for New York Magazine. At the same time, from 1982 to 2001, he was the film critic for National Review. Okay. John. He also does music criticism. John Simon criticizes everything okay. uh and his view would be that uh, pete wells a little too soft honestly i mean uh he um he says look you know uh, people aren't as critical as they should be most critics are soft and fearful and unimaginative and undemanding they're only willing to give offense to smarter people than they that has always been the case. That's reminiscent of Pete Wells saying he's only going to take on Peter mm -hmm. Luger because Peter Luger's up there. Uh, not so with John Simon. And he's had some real run-ins with people. And I had heard this before. There's one famous line he had about Sylvia Miles, who's an actress, 
Um, as he put it in his review, she was known for showing up at parties to which she couldn't possibly have been invited. And I thought her acting was the same way. <laughs> right? And at one point they asked him about politics and, you know, he's, he's a conservative in the sense that he's very strict about grammar and the like. And he says, politics has never interested me in the slightest. I often think of a line from Anatole France's novel, uh, I am not so devoid of all talents as to occupy myself with politics. Uh, John Syme, everything he says is harsh, but he's so harsh. They ask him at one point, why, you know, you're such a man of letters. You're, you have such, such a, a great academic background. You strike me as someone who could have succeeded in academia. Why didn't you just pursue that? Why get into criticism, you know, in academia? But no one would have me. <laughs> <laughs> and he was thrown out of university after university. But in any event, uh, John Simon, well-known, actually, uh, and there are critics like John Simon, uh, took great pride in being uh, harsh when he found that he had the support in his own mind for being harsh. That's what he's supposed to do. So Pete Wells is nothing to apologize about. Right, no. And that was fun. He provided uh, some real entertainment. He did. In the food reading world. Right. For those, that especially those who were not busy, as I was, watching the World Series. The World Series, of course, the culmination of the baseball season. Uh, this week, for those of you watching, you know it was an excellent World Series. It was close. You also may know, as Tamsin's nodding to me, she's going to pay homage. Uh, I predicted the precise outcome last week which was that the Houston would complete their the, win the games in Washington, of all things, and then it would go back to Houston for the final two games, and Washington would prevail in both those games and win the series, which is exactly what happened. It's very rare I predict things correctly, so we have to go over that in some detail. That's true. That's true. This is probably the exception that pl- proves the rule. That's right. right? Uh, you'll be interested to know that on the very night that uh, Washington beat Houston to win the World Series, uh, that same night, Houston was playing Washington in basketball, in basketball, in the NBA. And that was a remarkable basketball game. And it was 159 to 158, an enormous score. I mean, yeah. an incredibly high score. Yeah. And it went in the favor of Houston. Uh, Washington lost that game. It was the most points tied for the most points ever by a team in a losing cause, 158 points. And as the time notes, Somehow, Washingtonians probably won't be too disappointed on Thursday morning, which was the morning, of course, they won after they won the Baseball World Series. One thing I did note in terms of focusing on the celebration that's upcoming, um, and there will be a parade. What do we hear? A three-day celebration in Washington? Your mother reports this, so it must be true. Your mother is only 90— How old is your mother? 94. She must know. So, uh, as is John Simon, by the way. Um, And, uh, yeah, she reports a three-day, I'm sure there's a celebration, I'm sure there's a parade in there. And here's what's interesting about the first parade. The first known series parade occurred in 2005 after the Giants, New York Giants, played the Philadelphia Athletics in a World Series. Wait a minute, in 2005? No, I'm sorry, 1905. Okay. Good. Good. Gonna, good point. Good catch. That, that was the first parade. No, what have they been doing? 1905. 1905. And so, and they had a parade in Philadelphia. But here's the funny thing about that. Yeah. Philadelphia lost. Philadelphia held the parade, but they felt their team had a good season, uh-huh. and they felt that they should celebrate it, even though they lost. Philadelphia the series. loves a parade. Yeah, they love a parade, but they're not too forgiving for losers. They're totally into winning. Here, you had the Philadelphia team. They lose the series. They have the parade in Philadelphia. And here's the best part. They invite the Giants. They say this it was, was a, a different age, wasn't it? <laughs> it just, 
A different sense of Can you imagine Philadelphia today doing that? No. Inviting the other team, even if they beat them? And that was the first parade. That's where the uh, celebration comes from. That's the tradition. So we can look forward to that. Um, Is that all you want to say about the World Series? I did. I'm eager to hear you talk about what I heard about and read about. Didn't you have something about old World Series uh, articles? Oh, I'm going to come up. I'm going to come back to that. later? I'm coming back to that. I'm winning your appetite. There's more World (laughs) Series in my future? I could go on, yes. Oi, Gavalt. Yes, Oi, Gavalt. The famous baseball expression. A little um, art update here. And that is that uh, the um, uh, the panel, the small panel painting uh, by Chimabue uh, that was going to auction mm-hmm. did indeed go to auction, and it sold for twenty six point eight million dollars. Right, and this was a story. This woman found it. Well, I mean, th- this was uh, found in uh, you know had been in somebody's kitchen right. in France. This is an antiques roadshow I mean, situation. The original, the original story was yeah. it was like right over the hot plate or something. Right, like exactly. That. No, this uh, and they they've changed the story since then. I don't know if that to make uh, the buyer feel more comfortable about yeah. the uh, you know condition of the painting or whatever. Uh, but yeah, they didn't know. They had no idea what it was, and uh, so it uh, sold. But it was part of a larger. Altarpiece. But, but can yeah. you imagine if someone went to Antiques Roadshow and they were like, and you know, the roadshow's in Phoenix, and someone says, I have this painting over my hot plate. I can't remember the story behind it. What do you think it's worth? And yeah. they and they said, uh, that's $28 million. You know, uh, that would have been great. Yeah. They missed their moment. Yeah, but the sad thing is probably zillions of people are running in with their kind of greasy, spaghetti-spattered, <laughs> um, you know, uh, Pictures yeah. from the kitchen and uh, making people look at them and give a, an estimate. Well, I guess that's not so sad. That's what but, they do but for anyway, a living. It was part of a bigger altarpiece. Yeah, uh, pieces of which are owned by uh, the Frick. Yeah, and by the National Gallery. And what's interesting to me is that uh, you know they're able to uh, you know uh, test. Uh, fragments of the gold on the frame, pieces of the frame. They actually, they analyze the pattern of the wormholes in the wood that it's painted on, etc., and compare it to these other pieces to authenticate that it was originally part of the same altarpiece, which gives it some credibility. Um, But, uh, so... Well, there. my understanding is there aren't too many Chimabwe Chimabwe, uh, paintings. It was right. just, just like 13 Very or 14. Few. Very few. And he was the teacher of, remind me. Well, Giotto. Um, they Giotto. also say uh, Duccio might have worked with him. Right. Uh, he's, he's like the first chapter right. in uh, Vasari's book. But, 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 his, but, but he's the one who supposedly takes it from, you know, puts life into that very stiff, flat, uh, sort of Byzantine style mm-hmm. that precedes that. Well, it's by virtue of his being the teacher of uh, Giotto that I guess some people describe him as the father of modern painting, which is similar father to Father of modern or Western painting. Yeah. yeah. Okay. But, you know, I love Giotto myself. Well, look, right over the hot plate is where I would have put it also. So, uh, you know, that's that's a, you're looking there a lot. I mean, it's a chance to really have a good gaze. Anyway, um, but, but they also mentioned that, uh, you know, it's the, uh, it's brought the most money, um, second only to the record shattering $450 million, uh, for the Salvatore Mundi by Leonardo da Vinci mm-hmm. that allegedly was going to be unveiled in uh, the uh, New Louvre. Mm-hmm. 
and uh, it's disappeared. It really? Yeah, it was never presented. Wasn't that a preemptive bid or something? That wasn't an auction, was it? No, 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 no. It sold it an auction. auction. Oh, did yeah. it really? Oh, okay. Yeah, but uh, it didn't. Uh, did was not uh, presented when they uh, said it's it. It's probably present, and people are wondering. It's probably over someone's. Where is it? I can tell you where it is. It's over someone's hot plate. Is where it is right now. Where that's what that's where it is. That's where paintings go. Until their time comes. So um, here's something that's weird to me. I mean, maybe this is old school, I guess. But uh, there's an article. Look, we're all familiar with the fact that some teams decide their, their, their season is going nowhere in sports and football and basketball, whatever. And they tank, right? They tank. They decide to lose some games on purpose. They decide to lose games? Well, it's delicate. The management usually decides to tank. They don't stock the team. They trade away the players. The players are doing the best they can when they're on the field. But... The management doesn't equip the team to win. And as a result, they effectively tank and they get the high draft choice. And sometimes they have in mind a particular quarterback they might take or that sort of thing. That's what's been going on with Miami. They are looking at the quarterback from Alabama. They're going to lose all their games. This was true until eight minutes ago when the Jets all were subject. But in any event, Miami's been tanking. The Jets are so bad. They couldn't beat a tanking team? That's that, that's the headline that's, of tomorrow's New York Post. That's a little... Yes, well, we can crazy. come up with something. Just, just tank to the tankers. Um, yeah, it's weird. Uh, in any event, it's just an odd thing that you're losing on purpose, sort of, and you're taking the year off. So that's on enough. And then I saw an article, it's a headline, that says, Golden State Warriors Dynasty can probably survive a gap year. And I'm going, whoa, 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 wait a minute. Golden State's one of the top teams, if not the top team, well, the top team in the NBA over the last four or five years, tremendously successful. They come into this year always a contender, and, you know, they have some challenges. Uh, one of their, uh, Clay Thompson's out for the season because of, of an injury. They lost Kevin Durant in terms of being signed. Uh, and uh, the, the attitude of the team is, you know something, we've been knocking ourselves out every year. It's like an extra season to go so deep in the playoffs and get into the finals. Let's just take a rest, is the attitude, and retool for the following year. And I go, like, a gap year. I go, well, what? What? I mean, uh, the fans really put up with that, and maybe they do that in California. Now, now it, it's definitely going to happen. How do the players feel about this? I don't know. Isn't it a little demoralizing? The players play. The players play. and But the, the, the point is that they're not... They play the lesser players, and the lesser players play hard, but they don't get the same results. And especially now since Stefan Curry has hurt his hand, and now he's going to sit out. But the point on that, they won't rush him back. They'll say, Stefan, take your time. We're not going anywhere this year. We're relaxing this year. Uh, you know, there's playing hard and there's playing hard. And uh, they won't be. And so you have a team that in the first week of the NBA, NBA season, sort of the glamour team in the NBA is taking the year off. <laughs> I guess you can do that. I mean, because uh, they're doing it. Uh, so that's a little different. It's not the same kind of put your head down and do your best. It's, it's just, uh, you know, let's do what's best for the franchise in the long run. And that's uh, take it easy with this competition thing. You know, it wears you down. So weird. That but doesn't it's, sound ethical. But here's what what's interesting about it. It leads to the next point, which is that uh, it's trying to make, uh, you know, chicken salad out of chicken what? You know, of chicken X, and it's trying to deal with failure, failing in a creative way, failing in a way that sets up future success. And I know that you have something to say about that. Really? It's my turn? <laughs> That's right. <laughs> um, yes. Well, we both noticed an article 
saying that was titled early career failures can lead to later success right all right so that's been a theme since we started the podcast mm-hmm. failure you know being wrong uh having uh, disasters uh, is an important building block we've been learning from our failures success, that's our plan, okay yes. so we feel better and better okay uh about past uh <laughs> failures and uh you know i'm more comfortable like, more confident about racking up more failures to be honest but anyway Somebody did a story about it. Uh, and Well, the article starts out, what doesn't kill you makes you stronger, and now there's the science to prove it. Really? And uh, somebody did a study, and they analyzed uh, groups that had uh, either narrowly uh, succeeded in getting a grant from, issued by the National Institute of Health, they compared the ones who narrowly succeeded with right. getting the grant the ones who... to groups who narr- barely missed right. getting these and grants. And failed. They failed because okay. they didn't get the grant. Yeah. They they failed. They didn't get the grants. Right. Okay. But just by a smidge. Right. Okay. And uh, in analyzing them, after 10 years, researchers found that the losing group had gone on to more successful and impactful careers than... The group that won the grant. Okay. So they're trying to figure that out, you know. Um, in other words, failures in the first phases of your career may mean you can come back stronger than those who never stumbled. Um, and uh, you know what that means is people are resilient. People come back. They work even harder, uh, and uh, you know go farther. And maybe you know maybe the guys, people who have never stumbled. Just uh, don't, uh, you know, take as, I guess, what would you call it? A. Um, oh, what do you mean? A, a strategic view or a, a determined approach? Or right. What? They, they don't, uh, they, just, they just rest on their laurels. Well, I don't think and, they rest on their laurels. I think they just don't know how to deal with failure. I think it's a setback. And whenever you have a setback and a failure, there's that moment in which you have to determine how you're going to respond. And a lot of people, without the experience of having that in their past, don't respond well. They pause, they hesitate, they blame others, they blame themselves, they sulk, they get down. Whereas if you've had experience with a failure, you say, you know something, the sun's going to come up the next morning and uh, I'm going to reset. I'm going to have the opportunity to make it right. Right. That's all. I think it's that simple. All right. And so and the, and in the rest of the article, they also mentioned something called the failure resume. Yeah, you talked to me yes, about this. This yeah. I hadn't heard of. Yeah. Uh, but, this is uh, uh, interesting. Made famous by Melanie Stefan, a lecturer at the Edinburgh Medical School, who popularized the failure resume after she published her own. Um, and uh, it, it, basically, you make a list of uh, your misses, right. okay? Your failures with the lessons you've learned. From those failures, mm-hmm. or the you know the benefits that might have come out of those. Now they don't recommend that this is the resume you send to prospective employers. Okay, this is for your own personal edification uh, and growth, and it sounds like a good exercise. Well, you know something, I you know it's, that's funny. First of all, I do think it's an interesting exercise, and it's a little bit painful because people don't want to revisit their failures and see them that way, and see them all listed. But uh, I think if you get through it. And you think hard about it, you realize that you benefit in some ways, you learn from it, and you moved on from it, and uh, it's all good. And you want to know something? It wouldn't be the dumbest thing to hand to a future employer. 
Can you imagine going to a future employer and saying, I know you get this, the, the sort of the resume, oh, the kind of buffed oh, up, did, and say, you gonna, here's my failure right. resume, and here's what I've learned, and this is why you should hire me. I've Next been time you're trying to, line to cl- land a client, you're going to walk in, and it's here's not, all the cases I lost? No, 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 no. It's not landing a client. It's going for a job, which are two entirely different things. If you're going for a job, and you're saying, look... I've been through a lot of, uh, I have the education, whatever I have, but I've been through some hard knocks. I've won and I've lost. I see things clearly. I see myself clearly. And I think I benefit from that. And I think I'm capable of performing in the future. Yeah, I think that could work. I think that takes real cojones. Oh, yes, it does. But I think most jobs people don't get. I mean, if you're a long shot for a job, that's certainly something that someone, some employer is going to notice. And they'll say, let me take a second look at this. And a lot of resumes don't get a second look. In any event, it's just a thought. Uh, talk, speaking to people speaking who of failures. Success, have success after a lot so of So this failure. is Jim Simons. There was an article in the journal about him. And um, he uh, built what they call a trading machine. He's a quant investor. But to say he's a quant investor is, is really not to get to it. Um, there's a lot of investments done now on Wall Street, as most people know, that are based on algorithms which study various things that happen in the marketplace and set up automatic trading based on those algorithms, based on events, so that the the uh, the trading uh, platform just does it for you, even overnight, in response to different uh, stimulus points. Um, Simonson really created this industry and has remained the leader in this. He has, uh, by far and away, the best uh, pattern, the best computerized algorithmic approach to trading, so much so that his flagship medallion fund, he's got more than one fund, listen to this, has generated average annual returns of 66% before charging fees over the last 10 years. 66% (laughs) racking up trading gains of more than $100 billion. Uh, Now, the fees are substantial, so it's only 39% after fees, which tells you how much money he's making. Yeah. He's amassed over $20 billion wow. to himself. And this is interesting because here's his background. Here's background. He was a math professor. Mm-hmm. And he was very distinguished in terms of the field of mathematics. He won one or two very big prizes. He settled in as a, as a math professor at uh, Stony Brook out on Long Island. And in 1978, he said, you know something? Uh, there's nothing, there's not enough prestige, not enough money in being a math professor. Zero. Uh, I can be, I can, I think I can do this and become a zillionaire. And that that means something to me. So he quits his job as a math professor at Stony Brook in 1978. And he sort of sets out to raise money in a fund and invest and come up with this kind of system, which is based on the notion of um, step one, amassing all the data necessary in order to do the analysis that you could set up the program. And there's no obvious way to do it because you don't know what you want the program to focus on, what are going to be the triggers to buy or to sell. He's starting from scratch. And yet he has confidence in his ability as a mathematician to do this. Well, confidence or not, for 10 or 11, 12 years, he's in the wilderness. I mean, they're going nowhere. It fails, it fails, it fails, it fails, it fails. And they're going crazy. And they're getting data going back to almost the 1700s in terms of trading because the more data, the better chance you have. And yeah. it's failure, failure, failure. They have, this, there's a book about him that they're writing about here. And they only, I'm only going to focus on the failure aspect of it. But there are evenings where he's looking up at the ceiling. Am I ever going to succeed? Do I know what I'm doing? And he's not a professional investor. He thought that was a strength. He's an outsider. And yet zero, 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 no, 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 no. Then boom, 1990, it starts to kick in. And then it's uh, green fields, green pastures from that moment on. But talk about failure. Uh, and uh, he just tried to learn from all those failures, and he succeeded in the biggest possible way. So there you go.
There's a guy with a failure resume. All right, so still, I mean, failure is the key. Failure is the key. Failure it's unavoidable. Is- you got to make the most of it. You gotta, part of it is recognizing it's part of life. And that the, the difference between success and failure, and this, of course, takes us back to the World Series, is one pitch. Yeah. One pitch. The Houston team lost that game, I will tell you, on one pitch. In the seventh inning, they, they were had a dominating pitching performance. Uh, Zach Greinke. And he had given up a home run. They were still winning 2-1. There's one out. He's only thrown 70-some-odd pitches. He throws a pitch and 2-1 to Soto, the batter for uh, Washington, who's quite a good hitter. But he throws it, and it's right down the middle. It's a strike, and the umpire misses the call. He misses the call. There's no, there's no argument. He blew it. Mm-hmm. Now it's 3-1. Three 3-1 and one. Three and one with that hitter, it's very hard to do anything but walk him. He does walk him. Manners says, oh, he just gave up a hit and he walked him. I got to take him out. Takes him out, brings the next guy in, next hitter home run, they lose the game. If he leaves Zach Greinke in, they put in a different pitcher in the eighth inning, namely Jared Cole, and I think they win the World Series. It's because the umpire missed the call on one pitch. That's the difference between winning and losing the World Series. So just wanted to get that in. The Irishman. We wanted to say something about the Irishman. Yeah, I don't want to see it. Uh, well, not. this is a business is issue. Is it's, a business really? issue. Oh, okay. it's a business right. issue. We're talking business, honey. Business. Okay? Here's what's interesting about the Irishman to me. You can't see it. You can't see it. It's playing in very few theaters right now. Okay, right. one of them is playing is the one at Fifty Ninth Street, all the way west on Twelfth that we uh, that okay. we've been to. Yeah. But 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 it's playing practically nowhere, and here's why: because the Irishman number one uh, is no one would make the picture. It's too expensive to make, and the reason is because all you've heard about the. Uh, computer graphics that the they're CGI doing aging, the CGI an unaging de-aging of process de-aging right process. so it shows De Niro 20 years younger that yeah. turns out to be damned expensive so they're making a movie you know if it's that expensive they should have gone for 40 years younger right. <laughs> 20 years younger is not doing, doing it could have Shia LaBeouf they could have anybody play the part but the yeah. point is it costs 170 million dollars fine now they got Netflix the only people would make it okay okay so Netflix is involved Netflix makes the movie uh, great and when it comes time to distribute the movie, the way this normally goes is that uh, Netflix deals with the distributors of motion pictures and they negotiate an exclus- exclusivity period. The thought that it will be in, a, in theaters exclusively before it goes to Netflix with the thought that Netflix benefits from that because it gives a wide exposure. It's like yeah. advertising. Yeah. And they make some money on that kind of distribution too. And generally it's three months. And Netflix goes to these people and they say, um, three weeks. And the theaters are outraged. They're saying this is this big motion picture and so on, only three weeks. And uh, the negotiation goes back and forth. They do no better than 26 days. Netflix says, you know something? We're not interested in people seeing this in theaters. This is a Netflix thing. People watch this at home. And you know why? Because beyond this picture, Netflix is selling Netflix. Netflix is selling the idea that people should watch movies at home. They're not out to help the theater operators. And, you know, and finally, go back to your point at the beginning. It's three and a half hours long. It's tough to watch in a movie theater. Mm-hmm. So it's complicated, but it really has a lot to do with the future of motion pictures. And it's really going to come up in the four, the Academy Awards because it's going to be the best picture in a lot of people's minds. But it's not going to get it because it really annoyed people because of the way they handled it. And instead, they're going to give it to the Tarantino movie about Hollywood. So it annoyed movie people. People movie in the Academy. people in the, who, who vote. are going to be voting. Exactly right. right. But it's kind of an interesting story. It's and I agree always with, political. Uh, yes, it's always political, but it's political in different ways. And this is just business, as we like to say. And I'm sure in The Irishman, they say it's just business a hundred times because it's, it's a mob picture. Uh, so you had something uh, we discussed about uh, fortified milk. 
which is a mystery yes. to me. Well, so here's the thing. People aren't really drinking milk so much anymore. Right. But also people have, you know, are not drinking so much soda, apparently. Coca-Cola is looking for uh, other things to sell. Right. And they've actually introduced a new ultra-filtered milk called Fairlife with 50% more protein and 50% less right. sugar. Well, I've seen this advertised. I've been wondering what it is. What the heck is it? And that's what it is. It's milk. But they, they managed to filter it in such a way that there's actually less sugar. Yeah. And, uh, you know, it compounds the protein. Right. And they're able to sell it for double. Right. Pretty much double the price. But, but that's the amazing thing. They're able to sell it. People are excited about it. Yes. I wouldn't have assumed that. Yeah, I would assume it. Really? Why? Why? Because uh, people are kind of on a protein bandwagon mm -hmm. at the moment. Right. And uh, people have come around to the idea that milk might possibly be good for you. Yeah. Uh, and, and not skim milk. People are not uh, drinking no-fat milk mm -hmm. anymore, uh, apparently. And uh, it, uh, you know, uh, people are persuaded uh, that uh, this is, you know, a route to more nutrition and better nutrition. Uh, people are also not really jumping on the uh, soy milk, almond milk uh, bandwagon either. Uh, but uh, so this is all very interesting hmm. and it's, uh, you know, kind of fun. But uh, the article that uh, we read here in the Wall Street Journal says pretty much, it looks like it's just going to be another one of those food fads. Yeah, sure. You know, it, we're just, we're at a point where, like I said, uh, sugar's out, protein's in, uh, and uh, milk has, you know, people have been saying milk can be a pretty healthy thing. Uh, it's got calcium. Right. But to me, what's amazing is the way people have responded. People are voting with their feet or voting with their pocketbook, and this is real money that's being moved. And it's not speculation. It's not magazine articles. People are buying in. Literally buying into this. Well, for the moment. Yeah. Well. I mean, I mean, there are they they list about I don't know, uh, half a dozen big companies. But they're going to get into who it. Who are going to get into this? Well, I'm telling you, know, you Gordon, etc. There's no greater proof that this has legs, Tim. I don't know. I, we'll see. We'll see. We'll see. Uh, and you had this thing about uh, parrots. Well, speaking of nutrition, yes, the fun article in the science section of the Times: Why do parrots? Waste so much food. I've often now, wondered about Now, we have no this. experience with parrots, right. so we can't uh, you know, speak from personal experience. But apparently, when Polly asks for a cracker, yeah. Polly throws a good bit of the cracker down on the ground, yeah. eats just a smidge of it. And uh, somebody did a study, <laughs> and, Thank, thank uh, goodness. and they actually studied 103 different species. That would be 30% of all parrots and they all do it. Every single one, from the blue and yellow macaw of South America to the sulfur-crested cockatoo of Australia. And uh, all, all kinds of food, uh, they will tend to eat a little bit, throw away the rest. And the question is, why? Now, some, to some extent, you know, other uh, beings around them benefit. Uh, you know, the... the um, animals that catch the crumbs, right? It's like, right. you know, when your baby throws uh, food on the floor of the kitchen and the dog gets to snarf it up. So there is that. But still, what does it do for the parrot? 
and they haven't figured that out. There's the vague possibility that it's some kind of, you know, um, kind of nature uh, thing where it's their way of, you know, for instance, if they are biting off the fruit of a tree, it's a, they're helping to prune the uh, yeah, uh, right. fruit trees or whatever, and they will grow back with greater fruit production, okay? Yeah. So perhaps it's that. We don't really know. They do a little, they're a little less um, careless during mating season when they're bringing up babies, okay? And they need the food or whatever uh, for yeah, babies. Yeah, I think maybe parrots but, are just a problem, is what I'm getting here. But uh, maybe they'll find it. They can justify this kind of behavior. I, I see it as highly questionable. But do you think, but animals are usually so smart about things. I, you know, they I, usually conserve, you know, they eat every little scrap. Have you seen those rats in the I, subway? I don't really feel that I'm entirely qualified to talk about how, uh, as you should put it, would put it, conservationist animals are. I only catch them in small, small moments. But uh, I'll take your word for it. I mean, uh, yeah, parrots, I think the problem is that they don't have, uh, you know, hands and uh, hands with thumbs. I think they do a lot better then. The beak thing is a problem. Uh, all right, so we're going to close. Uh, I did promise you, and I know you were very happy to hear this, that we would come back to the World Series. I, you know, what the Times have been doing, which I, I think is a good thing, is uh, they have kind of thin coverage of the World Series, but they've been accompanying every day following the World Series game with an article from their archives about covering previous World Series. And what uh, I, one unintended consequence of this is to is that you can't help but notice is that the sports writing in their archives is so far superior to anything you see in the Times Sports uh, that uh, it's it's jarring. Now, now there's a reason for that besides the fact that the Times doesn't care about sports, and that is that uh, the responsibility of the sports writers in the 1950s and 1940s was quite different. Uh, not everything was on television. Certainly there was no internet. And the newspapers had the responsibility in their view to sort of create in vivid terms exactly what had happened on the playing field. Right. Uh, and they do so. Uh, but it's, it's quite wonderful writing. I'll give you an example now. Obviously they don't have that responsibility now. They don't even try. So um, this was one of the... Uh, I'll just give you a few lines. I, you know, I'd love to read the whole article, but you wouldn't stand for it. But... It's, it was a game four of the 1941 World Series between the Yankees and Brooklyn Dodgers. It's a very famous game. Uh, and the way it's described here is, well, I'll just tell you what happened and then I'll read a couple of lines. What happened was this. The, the Dodgers had the game won. And uh, the, uh, they went to the very last batter for the Yankees in the ninth inning. And he was struck out by the Dodger pitcher. And that was the end of the game. Except the catcher didn't catch the ball. And when uh, the catcher doesn't catch the ball and it goes by him, in that situation, the runner is allowed to try to get to first base. If he beats the catcher's throw, the inning continues. That's what happened here. The Yankees scored four runs in the 10th inning and won the game. So, uh, and that turned around the World Series. All mm -hmm. because the catcher didn't, didn't catch that third strike. It's a horrible way to lose. And here's the way John uh, Drebinger wrote about it in 1941 for the Times. He said, it couldn't perhaps have happened anywhere else on earth. But it did happen yesterday in Brooklyn where in the short span of 21 minutes, a dazed gathering at Ebbets Field saw a World Series game miraculously flash two finishes before its eyes. Few clubs in Major League history have ever had an almost certain victory snatched from them under more harrowing 
circumstances. A great Flatbush triumph appeared clinched, but in the twinkling of an eye, the victory was to become an even greater illusion as the ball skidded out of the catcher's mitt and rolled toward the Dodger bench. With the catcher in mad pursuit, police guards also came rushing out of the dugout to hold back the crowd, which at the same moment was preparing to dash madly out on the field. The catcher retrieved the ball just in front of the steps, but the runner, Heinrich, who the moment before had been at the point of throwing his bat away in great disgust, now was tearing like wild for first, and he made the bag without a play. Four runs hurled over the plate, and though the meteorological records may still contend that this was the brightest, sunniest, and warmest day in World Series history, it was easily the darkest hour that Flatbush has ever known. How's that? Pretty good. Pretty good. All right, so that's all we have this week for Tamsin Dan Read the Paper. Yeah, this is Tamsin Granger. And Dan Appuhop. And we'll see you next week.